Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. I am Lynn Franks, your host, and in this episode, I am in conversation with one of my favourite people, actor, director, writer, psychotherapist, community leader and so much more, Stella Duffy. Stella is also, I have to say, a member of my family and I'm a member of hers, so we think of ourselves as sisters and she is the aunt of my daughter-in-law and my son and my daughter-in-law have given both of us these five gorgeous children that we are very close to and bring us a lot of joy. So listen to Stella's story of how she has literally travelled the world and helped so many people realise that they can heal through art, through theatre, through writing. She is the ultimate storyteller. So my wonderful guest, Stella Duffy. Hello, Ellen. So thrilled to have you here. (laughs) Is not only an award-winning author, actor, director, psychotherapist, yoga teacher, and many, many more, all of which we're going to found with Fun Palaces and much, much more, which we're going to talk about. And also her current passion, which happens to be mine too, which is talking about post-menopause and the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women who are in that stage of their lives, because all we've been hearing lately is is the menopause, 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 but their life does go on afterwards. Uh-huh. Sure Thank does. God. <laughs> and gets better and better. <laughs> but the big, big thing I must mention, which is why Stella and I are sisters, is that we share five gorgeous, gorgeous children between the ages of three and 13, who are the children of Stella's niece, Monique Duffy, and my son, Joshua Howie. You see, so that makes us sisters because I'm the great aunt, you're the grandmother, we must be sisters. We are, and we also have this incredible love and uh, blessings of these children. Delicious children. In our lives, just so gorgeous, which I don't know about you, but I certainly don't see enough of, but... (laughs) Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to live slightly closer than you do. Yeah, so, I yeah. live too far. But anyway, so we were all together the other day having a lovely celebration of my oldest grandson, Mordecai. Because the other thing is that Stella and I are both practicing Buddhist. You're still practicing. Do you still practice? I, I am. Yes, we're both we're both practicing Buddhism we're, and the same Buddhism. The same Buddhism. Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, which you've done for many years and I've been doing for over forty years. But these delightful children of ours are actually being brought up as little Jewish children because uh, my son and your niece, who converted, chosen to take that path. And it, and it's very moving when we get back into any cultural situation to see these traditions being kept up. It was beautiful at the Bar Mitzvah. I mean, and also because their synagogue is very inclusive, my my wife and I did not feel like we didn't belong. We always felt like we belonged with that family. And in fact, of the five children, Artie the second is our godson. And years ago, I think he was only about four or five, but he said to Monique, my niece, he said, I'm really glad Stella married Shelley because that means I get two godmothers. Now, you see, there's, there's a reason for being queer, giving, giving the kids two godmothers. Exactly. And, of course, the lovely, wonderful Shelley, your much-beloved wife, is Jewish. It's <laughs> Jewish. was born Jewish. So we are, exactly. two, we are Jewish, Buddhist, mishmash. We are. We're, we're Kiwis, Jewish. Kiwis, and everything else. <laughs> and it's all really all special. All joined up. All special. So let's start off with your story, Sel, because you started off as an actor originally, didn't you? Because, but you were brought off in New Zealand. We, you were born in the UK and then went to New Zealand or what's yeah. the story? I'm the youngest of seven. Veronica, who is my next up sister, is Monique's mother. And when I was five years old, 
my mum and dad took the two youngest of us back to my dad's native New Zealand. So he'd come over during the war, joined up in 1939 to fight fascism like a good 18-year-old socialist. Astonishing. He was a prisoner of war in Germany for four and a half years, got to get my mum. They had seven kids between them and we are the youngest too. So there was a there were five in one big chunk and then there was a gap and then there was Veronica and then my dad had cancer between her and me and then there was another big gap between her and me. So I'm, my biggest sister is 17 years older than me. She's 76. So I've always had this big stretch and my youngest nephew is only five years younger than me. So I've always had this big stretch of generations all across, which has been really valuable, I think, which means of course I've had friends now in their 20s and 18s. Of course I do, because I grew up with this range of generations in my immediate family. Anyway, when we were five, when I was five, Veronica was 11. We moved back to New Zealand, but only the two youngest of us. My brother was in an apprenticeship. Two sisters were engaged. Two sisters were married. So the other five stayed in Britain. We moved to Aotearoa, New Zealand, where my dad grew up. And we lived in a small timber town called Tokoroa, which even now is a town that people still drive through. It's, it's you know how people are rude about, I don't know, Croydon and Luton. And I don't know, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of the, of the, the oh, urban space. equivalent for you, you know. Yeah, yes. Well, my small town is, a, is the kind of town that people were rude about when I was a kid. It was 70% Maori and Polynesian, which as older women, you know, Maori and Polynesian we love that. have a space for older women. The, in, in Māori, you or I would be called a whaea, W-H-A-E-A, which means auntie. It's an honorific, you know, like auntie Jude, perhaps in, in Hindi. And I grew up with, with oral storytelling cultures like it was normal because most of my friends were Māori and Samoan, particularly in my primary school. And as if growing older and having status as a woman was a good thing. And that and is a, actually uh-huh. a lot in Indigenous <laughs> In the indigenous cultures, that's the norm. I mean, in certain North American tribes, it's the elder woman that makes the decision who the young chiefs are going to be. Totally. And, and the same in, in, in Maori culture, you know, if an older woman would stand up at a meeting, an older Maori woman who would be called a, a fire auntie or kuia, queen, and say, ah, you guys have got that wrong, the men would sit down and listen to her out of respect for her age. Because she, because her age gave her respect, it granted her wisdom because she'd been sitting there listening to the blokes all along. Anyway, so I had the great good fortune of instead of moving to many New Zealand towns of very, very white, very, you know, the colonising people, where I moved to, that wasn't the case. So, of course, I, so I grew up in a white minority. They're a colonised nation. Absolutely, let's not pretend it's not that. But where Māori tongue and Māori culture was not exotica to us, it was, it was the neighbours, it was my mates, it was the norm, totally. So that was really fortunate for someone who, who wanted to be engaged in storytelling because, because Māori culture, Samoan culture, Tongan, Nguyen, Fiji, and they all have storytelling, as they call. Yes, and you are the storyteller. And in my Power of Seven uh, arc- archetypes that I work with, the storyteller is one of them, and of course, an incredibly important aspect of all parts of ourself, because that is how our traditions and our story, well, obviously our stories, our myths and our beliefs continue from one generation to another. Certainly can't believe what we read in the newspapers. <laughs> and, and it's how we understand ourselves. When we tell the stories of ourselves, it's how we understand who we are. 
And the more we can begin to narrate and understand our story, the more the more it makes sense to us. Yes, absolutely. And, and understand each other, of course. So having been brought up in this sounds absolutely idyllic <laughs> to me. Well, it, it was. I mean, it was very poor. It was. It's still a, a sort of, you know, the kind of place that people are rude about, but I'm not certain that their rudeness isn't at least part racism. I moved, we, I moved to Wellington, which is where I went to university, and I moved there about, it was about six and a half hours drive away. I'm the first in all of my siblings to go to university, and I'm also the first to have the opportunity to finish high school. You know, there just wasn't money to stay for anyone else to stay at school. My siblings are all brilliant, bright, smart people. They didn't have any of the early. I mean, loads of them made amazing use of opportunities later, but they didn't have any of the early opportunities I did. And so it's always been really clear to me that, sure, we might, you know, one might be successful in, in this area or that area, but Early opportunity makes a massive difference, and we really need to acknowledge that privilege. And I, yeah, I did. I had the huge privilege of getting to go to university and play. We made up plays. We wrote stories. We, I mean, I did a very bad English literature degree that I wasn't very interested in, and the marks proved it. But, <laughs> but I got, I got to meet other misfits. I got to come out. I got to find my people. You know, find find my tribe, and they were the queer people and the poorer people and the ones whose parents didn't have tons of money to pay for them to be at university. I mean, I remember I shared jobs with friends. One job was making sandwiches in a coffee shop. We started at six in the morning. And the other job was doing the dishes in a restaurant. And we started at six at night and we'd, we'd alternate. And then in between, we'd, you know, study a bit and party a lot. And they were all the misfits. And they are some of those misfits are still my closest friends today. I sadly missed out on university, but also grew up working hard in my dad's butcher shop as a kid. I think it, it doesn't do any harm to actually have that kind of experience and background in actually having to work to, <laughs> to, to live at an early age in a nice way. And I also parted a lot. So uh, you came back to England, obviously, after university, I assume. And- I, I, I worked as an actor in, in New Zealand for three years. I was really lucky. I got my first acting job a month after I finished university. I was 20 years old. And I got I got a job in a touring theatre company. And we toured in an old-fashioned benefit transit, transit van, five of us. And we travelled to places in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that had that was so distant from anywhere else. Sometimes it took a day's travel. And one of them, you had to cross the beach at low tide to get there. There's no other way to get there. So I got to see some amazing land and meet some phenomenal people. For a year, I toured this company and we did a primary school show for primary school age in the morning, a high school age kids show in the afternoon, and then a community show in the evening. And in the community show, we rehearsed with local people. So it wasn't just us doing it for them. It was doing it with them. Amazing. Yeah, brilliant. So, so, sort of some of the things that you did years and years later with the fun palaces, which Absolutely. we'll move on to later. Totally. But, uh, but, but the other thing that I did was I was, I was in New Zealand's first women's theatre company. So be, because New Zealand had a Ministry of Women's Affairs in 1985, while, you know, we're still going, maybe it would be a good idea to look at look at that. I don't know. Yeah, mind you, New Zealand did give the vote to women 25 years before Britain. Not did just they? To, yeah, yeah. New Zealand gave the vote to women in 1883. Gosh, I didn't know. Uh-huh, and not just white women. Wow. I know. And one of the reasons that happened was because Māori women were really engaged in the politics around that. And they had been from the beginning. 
But some of those islands, not actually New Zealand, but Tonga and some of the others, yeah, yeah. were matriarchal islands. They were run by their queens. So that's whole South Sea tradition of matriarchy. And, well, Polynesia has a full, and as, as actually does Micronesia and Melanesia to some extent, a full matrilineal and matriarchal understanding. And that got changed a lot with the colonizer who went, ah, God's a man and it has to go through men. And women go back in their boxes. Exactly. <laughs> um, and in 1980, the Ministry of Women's Affairs put out a bid to say, we'd like a women's theatre company. And me and a couple of other women got together and we created New Zealand's first women's theatre oh, company wow. called Vital Statistics. <laughs> <laughs> or in New Zealand, Vital Statistics. <laughs> and and we, we, again, we toured the country doing... We did three different shows that year, shows about feminism, shows about girls, shows about opportunity, shows about possibility. It was, and we wrote, we wrote, we formed, we created the work entirely ourselves. It's brilliant. Is it still going, the theatre company? No, that one's not. But a lot of the people who were off that company are still making amazing work. They're still mates. And know, I'm sure so. that's how it goes, isn't it? You plant the seeds and then the project continues and grows. Absolutely. And it was after that that I came to London. So I came back in 1986 thinking that I would stay for, I don't know, three years, five years, meet the adult siblings who I hadn't, you know, I'd loved seeing when I was 11. And one of our sisters had died, so it was really important to me to, to get to know them again, um, and found improvisation, found performing that has the word yes at its core, started to write, met my wife, and here I still am all those years later. <laughs> yeah. But I don't, how, I can't remember how long Joshua and Monique have actually been together, obviously more than 13 years as their oldest is 13, but probably about 16, 17 years. And all the time I have known you, and for many, many years before I knew you, you've had quite a changing careers I mean one has led to another has led to another has led to another and I guess if there was a thread storytelling would be the thread but a huge change I mean you were so prolific we talked about that the other day when we saw each other I mean how many seven 17 novels 70 short stories and 14 plays that's an enormous amount of work it is but I'm 59 and a half, and I started when I was in my mid-20s. So it's not like I've just done it in the last 10 years. No, but you are very fast. I have asked you before, when I was one time fantasising the thought of writing fiction, you, and I said, I haven't got the time, I haven't got the time. And you said, I'll never forget it. Get up early in the morning and write 500 words before you start the day. Write 500 words every day. Yeah. I still don't do. I, I do, but I get on my computer and start doing emails. And yeah, well, exactly. Things. It's the answering emails or the looking at stuff online and, and yes. getting your blood pressure up. Yes. 500 words a day, Monday to Friday, you get your weekends off, you take two, weekend, two weeks off a year for a holiday. You will have the first draft, 90,000 words within a year. Okay. You have inspired me. And until we finish your first draft, we don't know what's there. So, so story, I have a big theory about this story stories made of two things one is plot you know what happens this leads to that leads to that leads to that so it's kind of what you and I talking about with, with my career for example but but story is what's underneath what do we really want the reader to understand now what do we want them to know but what do we want them to feel when they read us whether it's fiction or non-fiction you know we want people to be drawn in and you don't know what that is until you've done the first draft of any narrative, fiction or not, which is full of plot. This happened, that happened, this reminds me of that happening. 
underneath that is story. And then, then once we've written two or three drafts, then we can see what the real story is. Well, my next book is going to be nonfiction. It has to be done. It may be my last book. Never mind, name my next book because I haven't done one for ages. You inspire me totally. I'm going to get on it. It's my <laughs> promise to myself. Not next week, the week after, because I'm traveling. I am starting my 500 words a day. Absolutely. But you don't question. have to do it first thing. I mean, I probably... I work better, and I'm a fast writer. That's the thing, you know. When I do have to write, uh, say, an article for a magazine or newspaper, I whisk it out and I edit it quickly, and it's pretty good. Then learn, pretend that's what you're doing. This is part of the problem, I think, that people have with books. They feel like they have to swallow the whole book in one go. A book is written paragraph by paragraph. It's not even written chapter by chapter. It's just paragraph by paragraph, one step after the other. I mean, look at yours. Look at your seed behind you. The seed is that that logo is made of individual petals and the center, right? It, the whole is the flower, but you just start by petal by petal. Yes, which is that, and I use that actually as a metaphor, <laughs> even when you're creating a business. So it, yes, you have the, like the business plan in the seed handbook was actually a daisy with number of petals, and each petal was different aspects of the business. Yes, which reminds exactly. me, I'm doing one right now. You know, this when you've been going for as long as I have, which is even longer than you have, you kind of go through the doing certain things, and then if I forget that I've done them in the first place, and then I start trying to work on something. I think, oh, well, that sounds familiar, and I search through the recesses of my computer. And find that something I'd written years earlier that says exactly. But exactly because because nothing is linear. It's all a spiral, right? We just need to remember that it's a spiral, and then we, then we go down to this part of the spiral. We bring it up to make it more relevant for now, but it's still part of the spiral. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now, to get back to your books, some of which I've read, but I definitely haven't done 17. Some of your plays, I have seen some, not 14. They go over a wide range of subjects. I mean, you've done a lot of historical work, historical novels, which include, I gather, I assume, lots of research, and then sort of very, very contemporary stories too. I mean, and and where was one of your books was made, or if not more than one, was made into a big TV series, if I remember. No, it. nearly. I oh, wish. I, never I, I have had nine books optioned for telly. One was optioned, uh, two, the Theodora novels, which are about the amazing Empress Theodora. They were optioned by HBO over five years for months, we'll say, specifically. HBO wasn't optioning them for anyone else. They were only optioning them for him. That's what the contract says. If we had a downstairs bathroom, then this would be the kind of contract that we would have framed in the downstairs bathroom. It's those people who do, do. So the contract said, this is a contract between home box office, which shall be called HBO, and months, and Stella Duffy, who shall be called author, not even named, and Martin Scorsese, who shall be called Scorsese. And, it's, and it never happened. I still think it would make a great series. And there's a series that's been optioned, at, well, there's a potential series that's been optioned at the moment. It looks like it might happen. Who knows? Who knows? Nam you harenge ko, that's what well, I say. Well, exactly. You give it to the universe. <laughs> you do. So talk about Theodora, because I did read that book, and it was one of them, and it was fascinating. Well, I so some of my novels, some are historical, some are contemporary, some are more literary fiction, a couple of magical realism, and about five crime novels. So my crime novels did quite well in Italy, which was a bit weird. I didn't even know you did crime novels. I've got to get, get <laughs> I've got to build up my Stella Duffy collection, obviously. <laughs> And and I was initially for a book festival in Ravenna. I could say Ravenna, but it doesn't sound anywhere near as pretty as Ravenna. And the Italians I was with, and there was a band who'd used some of my words from a couple of my crime novels and made them into songs. Oh, how amazing. I, I was so cool. I got to do a gig with the band. The band worked, it was in an ex-church 
that was now a theatre venue and the band were playing and they were playing the couple of songs that were based on a couple of my crime novels. And I was reading in, with a very bad Italian accent. My Italian friend told me off last Um And the Italians kept saying, have you seen the mosaica? And I'm like, I genuinely couldn't work out what the word was. The word was mosaics. Now, in Ravenna, there is the Cappella San Vitale, which is uh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's got the mosaics of Theodora and Justinian, who were, depending on the way you read your history, either the last empress and emperor of Rome or the first emperor and empress of the Bi- of Byzantinium, Byzantine, based in Constantinople. Byzantium, that's it, Istanbul. Anyway, I had never heard of these people, and I went to this church, this chapel, And the mosaics are from 548 AD Christian era. And they are amazing. But what is really amazing is you walk in. And, of course, Jesus is central. I mean, it's a chapel, right? On his right-hand side is the emperor and about 12 courtiers. Of course, quite right. But on his left-hand side and exactly the same size is the empress and her 12 courtiers. In 548, they understood that the Empress Theodora was as important as the Emperor Justinian. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I've never heard of her. How incredible. And I bought this tiny wee booklet about her in English in the chapel. And it said she'd been a dancer in the Hippodrome and her father had been killed probably by a bear, but they didn't know for sure, but he was the bear keeper, so probably. And that she ended up becoming the empress and they changed the law for her. And I went, oh, this is amazing. There must be novels about her. They came home and the last, that there's, there's one by Julia Bradshaw that isn't real, it's about her childhood. And then there's, in Robert Graves mentions her in Belisarius, but there's almost nothing about her. And she's a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Then I discovered why there's almost nothing about her. It's because from a very young age, this is all based on hearsay, but it, there is research to make it seem very likely, Theodora was prostituted. She was a sex worker as a child. Being a dancer on the hippodrome also meant that backstage you were a prostitute. She and her sisters were from a very poor family. They were also possibly of Northern African origin, so they were highly likely not as white as all the other Romans. So, you know, again, shut her down. When her and Justinian met, he changed the law to allow an ex-dancer, which meant ex-prostitute, to become the empress, to get married. Ex-dancers, ex-prostitutes weren't even allowed to get married. She instituted the first halfway house of ex-prostitutes because they couldn't do any other work. They were just, you know, left to bed once that once the patriarchy had decided they didn't want to use their bodies anymore. They were sinners. It was horrendous. She also brought in the first anti-rape laws and the first laws to make women be allowed to get back their dowry when they were divorced. So at this time, Christianity wasn't against divorce and just summarily divorced their wives when they got fed up with them. So she was amazing. And when she died, and there's loads of stories that say, oh, she, she enticed him with her sexual wiles and she was awful and blah, blah. She was also massively religious, had a huge religious conversion in the desert and really faithful, just so interesting. And after she died in her late 40s, Justinian visited her grave once a week for 20 years. He could have married anyone and he didn't. So not only was she phenomenal, but it was a proper love It's match. such a fantastic story. Yeah. <laughs> if I ran Netflix, I or HBO or any of them, I'd have it on there with Martin Scorsese or not. I mean, it's the most fabulous story. It, it is. It's a delicious story. I mean, the Scorsese story is interesting in that 
Gorby Dahl apparently wrote a script about Justinian Theodora for him decades ago, and it didn't get made because Scorsese got the money instead to make Raging Bull. That's the story I was told. And so he'd always wanted to, and then HBO saw that this was available, and so they they optioned it. Very, very annoyed. Well, let's just keep Nami Hurega <laughs> going on that one. And the plays that you've done, I, I did go to see, so I remember mm, seeing mm. some of them. I mean, they were more contemporary, the plays. Yeah, absolutely. So I've made quite a lot of work as an improviser and advisor, both as a performer working with improbable theatre who do improvised theatre, stuff the puppet, stuff with music, a show that we did over 250 times in Britain at the National of the Lyric Hammersmith, travelling at the Tron in Glasgow. And we interview people live on stage about their life. And then we perform the stories they tell us. So, for example, it's so delicious. So, if you and I were doing Lifegate now and you just asked me about Theodora, while I told the story of Theodora as we listened, me and the other performers sitting on the other side of the stage would start going, why don't we just be Justin Lee and Theodora? We'll just stand up and we'll be Justin Lee and Theodora. So what you get is you get a visual or a, a sound, because we have musicians working with us and we sometimes sing songs, a representation of the story you'd be told as, as you're hearing it from the person. It's, so it, That's incredible work. I mean, that is therapeutic work. I, it e- almost even resonates a bit with family constellation work. It, it really does. And and um, one, of the, one of our favourite scenes is very much like systemic family therapy in that... You would ask when you'd ask the guest to describe a usual family meal. So, you know, not like Christmas dinner or, or you know, Seder night, but a usual family meal, you know, Saturday lunch or Tuesday morning breakfast. And we'd provide them with a bell and a horn. And then, you know, the six or seven actors would get up, depending on how many people they were in the family. And the guest would, would give one note, just one note to each person. And so, You'd sit around the table, you get one character note, and actually, to start writing, that's all you need. You need one character note. Characters develop as you go along. And the guests, we would just start talking as a family at dinner, playing, you know, each character with one note, and the guests would go, Ding, yeah, oh my goodness, my mother did always say that, or honk the horn. I go, Oh no, my dad, my dad was never that nice, or my dad was never that mean. What happens through that, and the audience begin to see it, is that somebody watches their family. And then the audience begin to dream in their families into it. And at the interval, every single time, you know, we, we did this off Broadway, we did it in San Diego, the, the, the guests would say, oh, I feel terrible, I'm just talking about myself. And we'd have to say to them, you are, but actually the audience are thinking about their own stories. The audience heard you talk about your first kiss and they remembered their own first kiss, you know. And that's what you want from a story, right? You want, you, want, you want the audience, you want the reader to dream in their understanding. Yes, and you're giving permission by talking about your own story for that space to be given to others. It's, it's very powerful. And that show, I think, really changed my writing as well. So I have a novel called The Room of Lost Things, and it's set where I live in the projunction between Brixton and Camberwell, very mixed ethnicities area, fairly poor at one end and deeply rich as it goes over the hill into Dulwich at the other. And uh, an outdoor cleaner, Faisal, years ago, Mike Shelley, my wife as a playwright, once said to the pair of us, he said, you should write a bunch of dry cleaner. We know people's secrets. I was like, oh, my God, I'm having that one. And, and Faisal said, because his mother had had the shop before him, and over 40 years they had found such interesting things in people's pockets, shopping lists, but also 
best man speeches, you know, the speeches you read at a funeral, because because another shop you go in and you get dirty money for a clean item. In a dry cleaners, you take in something you care about. You've worn it to a funeral, you've worn it to a party, you've worn it to a wedding. You know, it's not, it's not your ordinary bit of clothing you can just sling in the washing machine. It's something special. And the things that get left in those pockets are the stories that go with them. And clothing has such story attached to it anyway. And so that book, what I discovered from doing Life Game is that it's not always the big incidents in people's lives that resonate with us. Sometimes it's the tiny moments and it's the tiny moments where you just go, oh, yeah, I felt that when I was 16 too. Or, yes, my mum said something like that the week before she died as well. But it's not about the big incident. It's about the little things. Absolutely. Did you write that book? I, I did write that book. So that, that book's out there. It's called The Room of Lost Things. But oh, that was that was River. Oh, I get it. Okay. Here's sorry. a version of it, right, that happened in Life Game. And I didn't put this story in it, but I did put those tiny elements in, in the novel. Janice Long, the DJ, who died what, only last year. Yes, yeah, recently, yeah. not long ago. Very recently, was an, a most amazing Life Game guest because she kind of got that her role was to just share stories so that other people could understand it. And she was asked, so Fayman McDermott, I think, was the interviewer that day, we shared interviewing, and he said, have you ever lost anything? And sometimes people say, yeah, my wallet, yeah, my keys. And she said, yes, a baby. And, the, you know, you could feel it when the audience go, oh, okay. And what to hold the guest gently, you know, kindly. And I said, you know, you don't have to talk about it. Do you want to talk about it? It's up to you. She said, no, no, it's okay. So she sort of told the story of what it was like and how it was. But then the next question, rather than performing that, the next question was, so what happened afterwards? And she said, I don't know if they were married at the time, but my partner and I, we had a pup tent and we went camping. And it makes me sad even now, decades later, to tell you. She said, and one morning we got up early and we just sat and watched the sunrise and held hands. And so my friend Neil, who's in the company and dying, Shelley had miscarried by then. I'd lost five embryos post-chemo, but chemo made me infertile. Neil and his previous partner had had loads of miscarriages. We both knew each other really well and we knew that each other knew something of what she was telling us. All we did was sit on stage, hold hands. Colin Grebfell, who's an amazing lighting designer, very slowly changed the lights so it was a sunrise. Actually, I can't even, genuinely, I can't remember a sunrise or sunset, but I know he did it beautifully. And no one said anything because no one needed to. And the audience... Janice saw her story given respect and honour. We held that story and the audience held all of us. It's just a phenomenal moment. And in storytelling, those moments are just as important as the, and the wedding day was like this. You know, they're just as Heart moments. Yeah, absolutely. Well, heart moments go all the way up and down, right? That's full, it's full. Every part, every chakra. Yeah, every chakra. It's in there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned chemo because, of course, you've you've had breast cancer a couple of times. I don't say that lightly. I mean, it's it's, it's horrible, horrible illness. The first time was when I was thirty six. I I was doing Woman's Hour, and I was going to go and I'm, I've been asked to go and talk about the remake of the Charlie's Angels movie. I remember that very clearly. 
so that dates it. So it was, it was 2000 and I woke up and I literally had a lump under my right breast. Like it hadn't been there the day before. And it was a big lump because my tumor was a three centimeter tumor and it had come up overnight. As we found out later, the tumor, there'd been an infection around the tumor, which is really fortunate because otherwise I would never have found it until much later. And it was bad enough when it was found. And I went off and I did go and sale. Which was just the weirdest thing. Yeah, we do those things, don't we? We carry on as if life is normal. Yes. Well, no, I'm knowing in, in the core of me that this wasn't just a sense. I knew the minute I found it, I knew it was wrong. But I was only 36. We didn't have breast cancer in the family, but then neither does 70% of, of, of people with breast cancer. It is, even though we talk about it as being familial, the majority of them aren't familial. And meanwhile, Shelley, because she's good at this, was on the phone to the GP getting me an appointment straight away. And they looked at it and they went, oh, that's probably a cyst, but, you know, we'll, we'll get you seen. But, of course, then I had to wait a while because, it, because there was no, no one thought there was any urgency. So by the time it was diagnosed, it was already a grade three cancer. And it was exactly at the point where Shelley and I and our baby father, Brad, were starting to try to have children. We decided that we wanted to. We'd asked Brad to do it with us. He and his wife hadn't wanted children themselves. When we asked him, he said, oh, I've been waiting for you to ask for years. We thought we were the perfect. And, and Meg, his wife, said, well, of course, I, I, just as long as I'm the fairy godmother. And we knew that there would be great people. to. We wanted a father involved, and we knew that there would be great people to bring to have children with. And everything, I mean, literally, it was ready to go. Shelley was going to do the first insemination that week, and then everything had to get put on hold. The hospital, I mean, this is... 2000, so it was 22 years ago. The hospital were fine eventually, but difficult at first. They, there was none of the protocols now for being kind and inclusive for queer couples. She wasn't legally considered my next of kin on the forms, which was so painful. And also there was no assumption that, that gay women would want to have children. So when I was told that I that they'd reckon, highly recommended chemotherapy because of the size of the tumour and the blood vessel involvement, I said to the oncologist, okay, but what's the chance of it making me infertile? And he said, well, 80%, probably, or more. And I was like, we're trying to have children. And, and it took him a good, probably a minute. I mean, seriously, there was a big pause in the room. And then I went, no, okay, fine. And we'll sort it, we'll get you into the fertility department. They can do an egg retrieval. We could do, you know, we'll do what we can. And they did. And I had five embryos made, six eggs from the egg retrieval, five embryos made. But this was 22 years ago. And even now, I mean, you know, the IVF industry pretends that it's so successful and it's really not. And so many people are brutalized by trying and trying and trying and the cost to try and get pregnant because we live in a culture that devalues us if we're not parents. It undervalues parents at the same time, of course, but while it's saying that you're not a proper woman unless you're a mother, it's also saying that mothers are terrible and never get it right. You know, both think women can't win. And we live in, that's the pronatal culture we live in. And, and so we tried it, you know, and it was, it was in many ways, it was harder to become infertile than it was to, to have cancer the first time around because I knew I wanted kids and I, I because, of, because of my siblings are so fertile, I assumed I would be too. And I was, except I got cancer. And then Shelley tried and did get pregnant, but she miscarried and never got pregnant again. 
And because everything's joined up, she was miscarrying when we went to her oldest nephew's bar mitzvah. And the good thing is that her parents had taken nine and a half years to meet me, but they met me just before I was diagnosed. I'm not sure I would have believed that they were okay with us if I had have only met them after diagnosis. And on that night of that bar mitzvah, and my wife's family are uh, Iraqi origin Indian Jews. And it's a small community, and the people who came here from Kolkata, which is where their community is, know each other very, very well, and they've grown up together, and they pretty much stayed together. And and my father-in-law, because Shelley wasn't dancing, because it was she was miscarrying, and she was in pain and sitting there to be there for her nephew, for her sister. My father-in-law danced with me first at that Bar as a kind of well, the community knew, but we were certainly the first gay people who who'd been there out. Of course there were other gay people, but we were the first out ones that, that had shown themselves in that community. And it was a really big deal, a really big deal. So they were ghastly things those few years, but also they were amazing. And and then I had cancer again. I, I went for a standard mammogram. I was going for mammograms every year because of it having been such a big tumour. And uh, the year I turned 50, there was small, thankfully, that time around, but signs of, of small cancers growing. And so I had a mastectomy that year, which was the year that I also created my fellowships and made all these speeches 10 days after having surgery and I'm just crazy things that I wouldn't do now. But then, but then first time around, I also, the show, the life game, we did off-Broadway this and when I just finished six months of chemotherapy and two months of radiotherapy, I did the show in San Diego taking a box of chemotherapy from the NHS so I could pay through the nose for an American hospital to give me NHS drugs into my veins so I could do the show that I was loving doing. And what, what, what was driving you? <laughs> Please tell me. I remember certainly when you started Fun Palace and I knew you'd been, you hadn't been well. Yeah, yeah. I, I love to work, man. I get that because I do too. I'm fortunate enough to love my work and to have work that is of value. I, you know, before I went to university, I, I worked in a, the plywood mill at the timber mill where my mother and dad worked. That work is in no way ever enjoyable. And it's, and it's toxic. I'm literally toxic because it has to be 36 degrees the whole time. And there's the disgusting stink of a toxic glue. The world is full of people who do. My dad was a labourer from the age of 14 to 65 and died at 67. The world is full of people who do not enjoy their work. I have the great privilege. Yes, I work hard, but I love my work and I've loved all of my works, performing, writing, directing, fun palaces, now being a therapist. I, I love it. Yeah, I totally get it because I love what I do. And, and there were times when I, my children are very quick to tell me I wasn't the best parent because I was so immersed in my work and I was, but I loved it too. I, I, I totally understand. And I think there are trade-offs, right? There are always trade-offs. I think that if we are trying to make the world we want to make, we will make choices and they won't work for everybody. And, and the, in the end, they may not even work for us, but the best we can do is make the authentic choice in the moment that suits the person we are at that time. That's so beautiful. And, and thank you again for reminding me why I do the things because it's, we, we don't, either of us, and, and, and I don't think any of the women that I know pretty much or know well and, and care for are, are 
really doing what we do for the money or the power or the fame. We do it for the love and the contribution back into working with others and somehow creating a different kind of world. That's how Absolutely. we do it. Absolutely. And the things we experience can become part of that. So really quite recently, my therapist, who is profoundly challenging, very good for me, bloody hard work. I was, and, and to go back to things being cyclic and spiral, I have experienced deep pain at not being a mother. I have hidden and pretended didn't exist my envy, my resentment, my bitterness, my anger, my pissed offness at all those women who got pregnant really easily, got the thing that I wanted so much. I have, because our culture doesn't want us ever to say we're angry, jealous, bitter, or pissed off, particularly not women. Oh, no, don't you be doing that. You have to, you have to suck up every crappy thing that happens to you and be fine with it. So for too long and far too soon, I swallowed down my upset about those things. And it has spiraled back many times. And really recently, I allowed myself to feel the hurt, the pain, the rage, the, the jealousy that I'm not allowed to feel because jealousy is so mean and it's so nasty and why would you? So not because I'm human. And having gone through that, quite difficult periods, real soul-searching, I have come back through to a much more useful place. And my therapist said to me, you know, I know this is going to sound clumsy, but I'm glad those five embryos died in you and you didn't get to have the children you wanted. And I knew what he was saying. And I was like, yeah, me too, because of where it's led me and where I am now. But, and I want to say I'm hard glad. You know, I, I, I'm not easy glad. That's a hard one, gladness. But everything is a it is life is a journey, and the things that happen to us at the time, which are so totally painful, do take us to the next stage of where we're going. It is spiraling. Totally do. Right. And I'm working now with a couple of younger women in their thirties who's cancer. Because so I'm working with cancer patients as well as more general psychotherapy, whose cancer has made them infertile, and who are really looking at. I mean, it's one thing to look at your your mortality properly which cancer does to you right in your face, not someone else's mortality, your own. It's one thing to look at your infertility. There is no blood person after me. To have the two together is really difficult. And I am so glad that my personal experience now enables me to understand this. I do not have the same experience, but to understand this on a different level. And they have said that they, they also find it valuable. They found me because it they know I've had be. those experiences. It has to be. So I, I want to talk about psychotherapy because as, we, as we're talking through your story, it's very clear that becoming a psychotherapist at this point in your life is not only for other people but also for your own healing. Oh, yeah, um, totally, um, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm as wounded a healer as any other healer. <laughs> <laughs> that says it. Let's just talk a little bit about fun palaces, though, because that was such an extraordinary one of your many extraordinary accomplishments. One minute we're sitting in Regent's Park with all the kids running around. The few times we have done that. And you said, well, I'm starting this new project. I'm calling it Fun Palace. I said, well, that sounds interesting. Let me know if there's anything I can do. Before I even thought any more about anything I could do, you'd done it, set it up all over the country, hundreds of thousands of people. And how many years was it going? I put it um, it's, it's still It's still going, but I left. I left at the beginning of 2021. So in 2013, I thought, look, 
Joan Little was an amazing theatre director. She really understood that theatre belongs to everybody. She wasn't just about, you know, belonging to a cultural elite. She really believed that creativity was everybody's. And this is after 10 years of austerity and people being told, oh, well, you know, if, if, if you can't pull yourself up while you've been strapped too bad. And, uh, and I thought, what well, we need to do something for Joan Little's centenary in 2014. And so I called a session with some people who were interested. And out of that, we came up with having... Somebody said, oh, I remember that there was this fun palace idea that never happened. And in the 1960s, Jane Littlewood, amazing theatre director, had wanted with Cedric Price, the architect, to create one building, one building to house them all, all the arts, all the sciences, all forms of culture, but not just for audiences to sit and watch, but to participate, to learn. The word fun was there because it was about learning. And can we make learning fun? Can we make learning accessible? And the word palace was there, not for Buckingham, but to rename it as a people's palace, that, that arts, culture, creativity and science belongs to everybody. And, of course, the 1960s, that people were like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and even now, I mean, we really struggled in 2013, 2014 to get people to buy into it. Of course, local libraries understood it because that's what local libraries are anyway. And, and then, astonishingly, and I, I was diagnosed in January of 2014. Astonishingly, by October 2014, 138 places around the country took part, including places like the REC and the Manchester Soil Exchange and, and the South Bank, but also tiny little community groups, you know, little libraries that, that were only able to open one day a week, saying we want to throw our doors open to the community to come in and do what they want, to share their skills. So Fun Palace is at its core, says everyone's brilliant, Everyone's creative. Everyone's got great thoughts. Instead of saying to people, oh, you don't know because you, you, know, you don't have the, the great good fortune of training in this thing that I did. You don't know, so I'll teach you. It says, what can your neighbour teach you and what can you teach your neighbour? How can you connect by sharing your skills? And it's all about community. Totally. The future is all about community exactly. in every it's way. fully community, hyper-local. And it says, look, it's, it could be really fun connecting in this way. And what we've discovered, and because it then became an annual event, and I had to very quickly learn how to be a producer, but marvellously, in the way that you know so well how to do, I asked one of my good women friends, who was a much better producer than I was ever going to be, Sarah Jane Rawlins, to come and do it with me, and she knew how to do all the stuff that I didn't. And, you know, I was, I was a Sarah Jane for years. She's our psychotherapist too because we're working with people in community and we're hearing people's stories and we just went, oh, maybe this is leading me back. But Sarah Jane used to say, you know, we wheel Stella out to make speeches. We wheel Stella out to talk about this. And the reason she said it was because 10 days after I had an eight-hour surgery and a mastectomy for my second breast cancer, I made a massive speech. Jude Kelly brilliantly asked me to at the South Bank as part of the Wow Festival, about fun palaces. I must have been there. I'm sure I was there. You may well have been there. That yeah. got all these phenomenal women who were already doing great stuff in the community. You know, fun palaces never says this doesn't exist. It says this does exist. Can we help you shine a light on it? Would it be useful to use some of our resources? Not we'll tell you how to do it. You know how to do it. Can we get the posters printed for you? You know, if you've got no local support from your local council, can we encourage the local council to support you? So what Fun Palaces does now is it, and it has done and grown over this this past nine, nearly ten years, is say, look, there's phenomenal stuff happening in every community. Let's shine a better light on it, and let's shine that nationwide because then we can amplify each other's voice. That's why it matters.
it's making me think about my own little town where I live, which has, has a number of creative things going on, all of which are disjointed. There's no community communications. When I have the time, I do look at it and say, look, come on, guys, we should do something. But maybe from palaces is the answer here too. But, okay, here's a really good example of why that's an answer. My local library up the road was being closed by, by the local council with cutbacks. This is in the first year, 2014. They thought, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll just, and it's hard for libraries because they've got all this health and safety, they've got all this risk assessment forms. They genuinely have to fill in. But for three hours or four hours, they can truly let anyone in and anyone can run a little thing. It's okay. It's going to be safe enough for a short amount of time. They invited all the local community groups into one space to come and share their stuff. And so it's kind of like the farmer's market, but for the community groups. And it's free. And so I sat there and watched, because I was sitting between them, I watched the local football club talk to the lady who was doing aromatherapy with with that she she you know foraged for over the fields here in very very urban areas but parts about parks are left to go wild in summer which is fantastic get together and begin to have a chat she ended up doing massages for the football club they see that you cannot force that kind of community connection but when you bring people physically together in a space that they wouldn't necessarily come together otherwise they begin to have conversations themselves yeah. it's just making a space for people to talk to each other yeah it's 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 fantastic it's absolutely fantastic and of course you got the obe round about that then for your work with with fun palaces and then and then you you came out of it a year ago trying to move on to yet another new I say a new career, but a new new stage, a new step. Well, yeah, it is. So basically, as it turns out, every decade I've done something new. So in my 20s, I was mostly an actor. In my 30s, I was mostly a writer and an actor. In my 40s, I was mostly a director who was writing and doing a tiny bit of acting. In my 50s, was mostly fun palaces. In my 60s, it's going to be mostly psychotherapy. I don't know what my 70s is yet. I'm looking forward to finding out. Um, Life will show me. And so... I think it was partly my second cancer, which came as a big shock. It, I, I truly had felt like I'd made a pretty strong trade-off. Okay, yes, chemotherapy sounds like it's going to keep me alive. To do that, I'm going to have to lose my fertility. That's a massive trade-off. Presumably then I get away with it. It won't come back. And it didn't come back for 14 years, which is amazing. But it did come back. So there was a there was a part of me that was like I didn't get away with it. There was a part of me that was, oh okay, this I have to I have to look at who I am. I have to look at me again. Uh, you know, not that I hadn't been, but I had really given so much of my life to Fun Palaces. I have to sit back a little and see what I'm doing. And it wasn't that I don't love Fun Palaces, and I'm not still really deeply proud to be the co-founder and, and all of that. But I never meant to be a producer. And I did mean to work more hands-on with people. And as it turns out, the cancer therapist that I was brilliantly allotted with eight, eight free sessions from the NHS was an existential therapist. And I'd never come across existential psychotherapy. The only existential work I knew was Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. And existential psychotherapy is very much about what are we, what choices do we have? What choices have we not noticed that we've got? What choices have we taken and failed to admit that, yep, that was a choice. I could tell you that life forced me into it, but it wasn't so a choice. And where do I take responsibility for my choices? It's, it can be pretty tough. It's very tough. And, it's, and again, going back to Buddhism, that 
taking responsibility for our actions, our karma, the cause and effect. Exactly. There, there are several studies that point out that Nietzsche and Kierkegaard considered that, you know, the coat the coat fathers of, of, of existentialism. It was around the times that they were starting to write the first European, German, French translations of Buddhist texts were being shared. There is so much of existentialism that is Buddhist. So Sivan de Beauvoir writes, it's not enough for me to will my freedom. I must will the freedom of others and take action. You know, that I cannot just go, I'll look after myself without looking after everyone else, without acknowledging my responsibility for everyone else, which is the Buddhist concept of, of, of dependent origination. We are all joined up at all times. Existential psychotherapy and philosophy talk about intersubjectivity. It is impossible to consider myself just as an individual because I'm always in relation to others. And so when I'm working with an individual client and they start talking about their mum, their dad, their sister, their wife, their husband, their partner, their child, those people are in the room. Of course they are. We carry our immediate communities, our past communities, our future communities with us at all times. And Buddhism knows that. Existential work knows that. It's all so extraordinary. It's it's, so It's all joined up. And and I just want to come back to your story because we... I want to make sure we do talk about this. We could talk for hours and hours, but the fact that you've now been doing this, you also fitted in between that becoming a yoga teacher and teaching people how to do yoga and writing workshops, which sounds fascinating. Yeah, well, I only because I love embodied work and because I love yoga. The only reason I became a yoga teacher, I, I'm not. You know, there are plenty of brilliant yoga teachers much better than me. I teach yoga for writing, specifically yoga for writing. I do a workshop once a month online. I do a few workshops in person. I'm doing one at the London Library tomorrow morning. Delicious place. I don't know how you fit it in. I truly don't. (laughs) But anyway, so so now you're in the third year of your doctorate of psychotherapy. So you are actually working with personal clients. And, of course, Monique, our lovely – well, my daughter-in-law, your niece, our lovely Monique, is also doing – like a, a therapist working with children and it's just life goes round and round. Here well, we and are she's working. begun working with adults now too. So maybe I'll end up working with children when I'm in my 70s. Maybe that's where I'm going. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so, of course, you're a campaigner, you're a social activist, you're one of the founders of the Women's Equality Party, which I was also involved in. So, you know, our lives have gone round and round each other, no question about that. You've worked for... LGBTQ plus equalities. I can never get the letters right. There seems to be another couple added on. You can you can add in I and A for intersex and asexual if you want. Oh, I never remember them all. But anyway, whatever it is, you're, you've worked for equality, sexual equality for many many decades, and have been a, a speaker on the subject all over the all over the world, really. And you're a member of the Gateway Women's Childless. Elder women, which I've never heard of before, which is the Nomo Crones, which is awesome. Or, it's fantastic. It's a bunch of child, Nomo Crohn's, bunch of childless say. older women talking about what it is like to be a postmenopausal woman and not be a grandmother in blood, but perhaps a grandmother in understanding, Spirit, wisdom, and, and life. life. Yeah, exactly. I realise that more and more that that's what it's all about, really. So now you're studying specifically the area of postmenopausal women. And we talked briefly about that when we saw each other the other day. Um, and, you know, there is so much conversation. Now. It suddenly seems that every high-profile woman from TV and media generally has suddenly reached the age of 50 to 52 and think they've discovered the menopause. 
the age I am, which is considerably older than you, I went through my menopause 20 odd years ago. Well, I went through my menopause after my first cancer when I was 36. You know, it's great that it's getting more attention. Let's not deny that. It's making a difference for many people who did feel and have felt like, like that they were silenced and they were ignored. However, this is what happens cyclically. 20 years ago, too. Other women were saying, "I'm menopausal. Let us mine." You know, we keep getting we keep getting silence. And in my research on the embodied experience post menopause, what I've seen is there have people keep saying, "Oh no, one ever talks about menopause." I found papers from the 1950s where people are talking about menopause, and and there are plenty of papers that were written that aren't on the internet that I can't find. What I think might be slightly different is that at the moment the conversation is purely, primarily being about HRT. And what I'm particularly interested in is not, not to deny the, the medical possibilities around it, but menopause is not purely a medical experience. Menopause is a societal, cultural, psychological, emotional experience. It's a transition, and we, tra we transition into postmenopause. Menopause itself, technically, only, only lasts the year between your last it's period. It's passage. Oh, yeah. And there is so little attention to what happens to us in the next 30-odd years of our lives. And on, on a personal level, as somebody now who is 74, I have never been happier and never more clear about who I am. I'm as prolific. Uh, I still have relationships. Everything is very, I still dance. I still go to festivals. I mean, it's, it, and I, you know, and I've got all these lovely kids. I mean, it's, life is good. Exactly. And one of the things I'm slightly concerned about the current tone of the menopause story is that it's only negative. Mm -hmm. Agree, agree, agree. Now, living with a wife, and ha so, so I have not only had my own menopause. You've I've had two menopauses in your household. I've experienced what it's like to be a partner of a menopausal person. So I think I have a pretty useful perspective on this. I've also got, you know, five of the big sisters. Um, no, four little sisters one dead. I, I don't deny that for some people, but statistically it's not that many actually, some of the symptoms experienced primarily by Western women, and, and I'll explain that the symptoms are different in some cultures, can be close to unbearable, like hot flushes and night sweats. Now, if we lived in a culture that didn't think it was embarrassing to have a hot flush, then it might stop being so unbearable. If people didn't feel they had to hide their hot flushes, it might stop being so unbearable. And when I went into an early menopause, the minute I started the drugs for chemotherapy, my hot flushes were unbearable. I was getting them 40 times a minute, uh, an hour sometimes. I, it's not that I don't know, but of course there were no hormones I could take because I was having my breast cancer treatment. I'm not saying because I went through it, other people should either. But I am saying it's not the only experience. There are, and those things are exacerbated by us living in a patriarchal and ageist culture that denies that this happens. And what we've discovered from the global research is that in other cultures where it's not bad to be an older woman, women might have hot flushes, but A, they don't experience them as so painful, horrible, and shameful. And B, they tend to describe having fewer. Now, their diets aren't always so different to us, so it can't just be down to Sometimes, that. of course, the Asian diet, you know, for years until they started eating some rubbish we did, they didn't have a menopause. There's also a very interesting study that Japanese women never, never had hot flushes. They only had cold chills. They didn't have any of the other things we call symptoms, and they had aching shoulders because they weren't any longer holding a baby. That was the story about it. As soon as HRT was introduced in Japan, women started having hot flushes. 
Well, there was no word for ja- in Japanese for the menopause, is there? No, there were really, it, well, there is a word, but it means not grandmother. It means something like not, yes, it's not a medical word. Yes. And Highland Mayan Guatemalan women not only have the same osteoporotic bones as North American privileged white, eating well, blah, 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 women, but they don't have the same practice. Highland Maya Guatemalan women, you could, there's a brilliant study looking at bone density. It's x-rays, it's, it's MRIs, it's, it's the, a full-on academic scientific study. The bone density is the same. They are officially women with osteoporosis, but no fractures show up. And the belief, the understand, scientific understanding is that, A, they're getting really high calcium in their diet from water, not from milk products, as children. So it is a diet thing from childhood. But B, they are exercising well into their late 70s because they have to carry water two hours a day to and from the crops. And we are telling women to be more sedentary. Our lifestyle sitting at computers are more sedentary. We are encouraging us to perceive our old age as something to be ashamed about and put away and not to get out there in our flabby armed gloriousness. We are being encouraged to hide back and not take up space. And we've been encouraged to do that since we were little girls. Mm. And this whole thing about being invisible, because so many women get to menopause and feel they're invisible, which is well, no sense. But it makes sense in the current world, but it shouldn't be making well, sense. Well, it, it shouldn't be making sense, although the cloak of invisibility can be awfully useful sometimes because it means that we can sneak in. And uh, and pull out the underpinnings from underneath. So I, I, I I'll, I'll take it and I'll leave it. But I don't want to have. To, I want a choice about that. I don't want to have it enforced upon me. And that's part of the problem. So what we know from mass. I mean, seriously, massive global studies, systematic studies that look at hundreds of studies across the world, is that menopause is experienced differently in different cultures. And it is experienced differently within different cultures. There is no universal menopause. Therefore, there is no universal postmenopause. Part of the problem at the moment is we are talking about it as if it is the same for every human being who experiences it. And it's just not. And we're ignoring this other 30 years. Starved. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Well, this is this is this is going to be in a very interesting space to examine in more detail. And I know you're going to come up with some brilliant, brilliant concept if you haven't already. Well, I haven't, but I've done my first interview with my first participant, and her experience as has just filled me with so much more knowledge. So I've got seven more really in-depth interviews to do. So we talked about this as well because this is your thesis, but it will also be a book, or your doctorate will be a book. I can see it as a play. I can see it as an interactive play. <laughs> oh, yeah. Women come and talk about their experiences. Yes. And then yes. they're acted by other people. And, yeah. I can, and then I can see that as a community event. And I can see you bring you all together, all the many brilliant, brilliant things you've done and, and really focusing on this area. Because there's an awful lot of us out there. And we've got quite a lot of years to go. And we've got a lot to give. And we've got the wisdom. You know, I, I, you know, I look at you, what, 15 years older than me. I look at my older sisters. I, and I think, yes, there are some women who are, who are in that spotlight and, and the work that you've done to, to make a light, to share stuff. But there are so many that, that just are not being heard who also have wisdom and knowledge. And, and we are losing information. 
And, and these are the women in communities who really can take the role of the wise woman. And I, I've started working with teenagers here once one day a week, and I think that there's so much connection between the, the, the 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old young woman and the 60-plus woman, and we have so much to give each other. And I see that as, well, that's something I am already working on, but I think that's the thing is it's all very well being a wise woman sitting on the top of a mountain contemplating our labels, or we are the wise woman as we all wish to be in community. In community, intersubjectively, interrelatedly, in community. Absolutely. Oh, it's going to be an exciting time ahead. We will speak again. Brilliant, Lynn. Thank you. So much, so much, so much to say, so much to do. I've really enjoyed it and learning even more about my sister here, my sister Stella. So thank you, thank you so much. Our seed exercise this week is based on the very good advice I've had from Stella over the years about how to write my next book. She has said to me, if I write 500 words a day, Monday to Friday, in just a few months, I'll have the outline. And of course, she's right. So why don't you think this week about the book, the story of your life, a story you'd like to tell, and just write 500 words a day for five days and see what you've got at the end of it. It is a very, very powerful and very simple exercise to do. Thank you so much for listening and taking part. Remember, we will be putting up more episodes every few weeks and we do hope you'll come back and join us again. If you like what you hear and want to learn more practical methods to help you plant the seeds in your own empowerment journey, then please subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review. Also, do make sure to join our Seed Network if you haven't already and together with thousands of like-minded women, you can make friends, promote your business and share your stories. Visit seednetwork.com to find out more. And until then, I'll see you next time.